and welcome to Dealer's Choice. Today it is Series 2, or Season 2, Episode 6. And we, I know it's been a while since the last one. We have been working together with our new affiliation partners uh, to raise mental health awareness and suicide awareness. So going forward, Dealer's Choice will be raising awareness with, proudly, uh, the camzone.net. That's cam. It's the campaign against living miserably. It's a leading movement against suicide within the United Kingdom. Every week, 125 people within the UK uh, take their own lives and CAM exists to change that. Also, uh, we are also working with Aware Ireland. It's kind of the same sort of venture, but they have came to fruition a lot uh, when the light of COVID, uh, a lot of people haven't been living great, haven't had the, the greatest of time mentally. And it has been tough. As we all know, it's been tough. So going forward, Dealer's Choice will be working together with these two brilliant charities to raise awareness for mental health. Anyway, today, going forward, as I said, it is season two, episode number six. And today, it is the Keith Conway Show. Hi, how's it going? Not bad, Keith, not bad, my friend. How's yourself? How are you? You're looking well. <laughs> Looks can be deceiving. Anyway, long yeah. time no speak. Um, a little birdie told me that you've uh, flown the Irish nest and you're now in uh, Thailand? Yes, I am in Thailand, the land of smiles. <laughs> well, it depends how drunk you are, I suppose. Um, what part of Thailand, Jen? I'm in Pattaya. Pattaya. I've, I've never yeah. been, I've heard so many good stories, Pattaya, Bangkok. There's loads of other uh, parts of Thailand that um, beautiful country. Yeah. Yourself, born in 1988, an 80s lad like myself. Lucky for you, you're the kind of latter 80s. I'm very early 80s, but that's another story. 1988, Dublin, to mother and father, Eamon. Big Rangers fan, I know, Eamon, if you're watching. <laughs> good result this year, eh? Yeah, good lad. And uh, mother... <laughs> I was actually hoping you would bring that up, and he was saying, to me, make sure he doesn't mention the Rangers and Celtic team. <laughs> and there straight away because, uh, yeah, Celtic aren't doing very, very good at the moment. Well, you know, uh, it's been nine years of absolute torture and one year of bliss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so uh, Father Raymond. And that's and when you decided to do this with me, yeah. That that's it, yeah, I just <laughs> coincided the, the magical yeah, 55 uh, titles, and we'll get you. Uh, We'll get Eamon's uh, lad on and we'll rub it in Eamon's face. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so born uh, father Eamon right. and mother Wilhelmina. That's pronounced right, yeah. Wilhelmina? It's pronounced Wilhelmine, to be precise. It's German, so she has German blood in her. Um, so, yeah, but everyone just calls her, everyone that knows her calls her Wilhelmina. Wilhelmina, well, and um, so that means that you're kind of part German, part Irish? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and um yes. Yeah, so uh, don't comment, don't comment. <laughs> <laughs> so born into the world, as I said, um, and uh, you grew up, you had two brothers, Christopher, your older brother, Kevin, your yeah. younger brother, and you grew up in is it Artane? Artan? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Artane. Um and, I grew um, up One? you um married Lara, who um just lives oh, <laughs> she grew up just not that far from me in uh, Fife. Um, and you have two little boys, uh, Conrad and Four, eight and four year old. Four That's is four. Four is four, four is four, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, 
you met in 2012 when you were back uh, backpacking in the United, uh, United States, in Australia. Yeah, in Sydney, in Australia. Yeah, so we met, um, I was staying in, uh, in the maze backpackers in Sydney, and Lara was working around the corner in Scruffy Murphy's, Irish pub, a lot of people would know if they've been to Sydney. Um, yeah, and we kind of had the same kind of friend circles, kind of noticed each other back and forth, um, but we never really talked. And then one morning, I get home, so half two in the morning, uh, not the most soberest of people. And <laughs> I went up the three floors of my hostel, got into bed, and said to myself, geez, I'd love a smoke. And then I was like, oh, I don't want to go down all the way down the three floors to have one. But then I said, ah, I do. So I went down on the three <laughs> floors. Went outside and I was having a smoke. I was talking to one of my friends who worked on reception there. And then next of all, someone jumps on my back. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was Lara. She was uh, coming back from work. I think she had a couple of drinks after work. <laughs> be polite uh, <laughs> and she jumped on my back and then we just clicked and we says um do you want to go around the corner to criterion which is the 24-hour bar so we went around there and yeah the rest is history rest is history so, uh, don't smoke it's bad for you <laughs> <laughs> it's bad for your back by the sound of it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was in 2012 you guys got married in uh, 2015 um, at a big castle. Yeah. Um, Timothy Castle, awfully, uh, and awfully, awfully expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you are. And as I said, you've got two lovely boys, uh, eight and four, who are there, um, <laughs> Conrad and four, who are eight and four. Christ, I'll get the hang of this. Um, yeah. Who are there with you just now, obviously. Um, and <clears throat> no, just because you said um, the wedding and then. Conrad there, you'd be pleased to know when we were getting married, Conrad was uh, 18 months and so he was just starting to walk. So uh, Lara thought it'd be a great idea and Lara's parents if if they got Conrad a kilt. <laughs> so he walked down the aisle in like his big curly hair and a little kilt. Oh, it was adorable. <laughs> adorable. I thought you'd like that scene as you're Scottish. No, oh, well, oh, yeah, of course. Any any good luck stories and nice stories about that is um, is brilliant, uh, especially the old Scottish heritage. Uh, anybody yeah. that's met Lara can tell she's Scottish straight away. I, I did <laughs> speak to her just before we went on uh, went live, and I was like, um, how do you know How do you know I'm from Fife? I was like, well, we spoke at an event in Dublin many years ago. And she goes, I can't remember that. I must have been drunk. I, went, I think we're fucking both were, actually. But um, yeah, lovely, lovely girl, um, lovely family you have, as you've said. Um, now, thank you very much. You got into poker at an early age. Was this yeah. through uh, mother and father getting into poker? Yeah. yeah. So, as the kind of most of the Irish poker community would know, my family is very heavily involved in poker. Um, it's gone back years, probably thirty years. Um, my nana played and my mum and dad played. So I was introduced to poker very early on. Um, and then when I became 18, my my father and I kind of, because back in school in 17, I had some um, house games with my friends and stuff, and we self-deal and 
things like that. But when I was 18, my dad decided, why don't you try and learn how to deal cards um, okay. and some money out of it. So he called Stephen McLean, who All was right. a family friend, and he's a big figure in the Irish public community. Sure. Um, so Stephen called around to the house, uh, say, just put it in perspective, it was on a Tuesday. He gave me a deck of cards, put a few chips on front of me, taught me how to shuffle. Uh, for about, about a half hour, he taught me the blind structure and, and stuff like that. So he goes off, and I'm just, he's just like, you pack this way, and I'm not thinking anything. And I was like, all that right. Was, that was a Tuesday. That was a Tuesday. Thursday, he calls me, and he says, uh, keep it away. Um, the Irish, the IPO, <laughs> the International Poker Open, is on tomorrow, um, if you'd like to deal it. <laughs> so here's me with about like a half an hour's practice. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Didn't know what it was getting myself into at all. <laughs> um, so the IPO that year was 2007. It was in the RDS, big massive warehouse, and, uh, function hall warehouse in the RDS. Yeah. Cement floors, real kind of a raw job, poker tables everywhere. Um, so yeah, started that day. I think I got taken off about seven different tables. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Stephen just kept showing me into more tables and I started trying to start picking up a bit. Um, and I ended up working a 17 and a half hour shift that day. Oh, so you, yeah. it was a part-time shift then for your first shift? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> any, any of the dealers that know, uh, might watch or listen to this will know that a 17 and a half hour shift is the norm. Um, yeah, I was just about to say at the time, it was a really <laughs> long shift, but I didn't know it was, uh, that was going to be the norm. Yeah. That's it, yeah. I mean, going forward, um, it is. I mean, listen, we've all been in it together. We've all been at the end of a, an 18, 19-hour shift at times. And it's great because you know the person at the left, the person at your right. We're all in it together. There's nobody, you know what I mean? It's it's just the norm. Yeah. Every, everybody's suffering or everybody's enjoying it, whatever it is. Um, a lot of people moan and groan about it, but if we didn't like it, we wouldn't can do it in the first place. It's, um, yeah. for me, I mean, they say that um, if you enjoy a job, you never work another day in your life. Now, I, since I started doing the poker job, I've met loads of good people like yourself and other people I could rattle off. And it is, for me, it is the people I work with primarily that make the job easy. The players obviously make the job easier, but primarily yeah. the people you work with is brilliant. You drink together. You eat together, you chat, you have the banter, you have the fun, the jokes, the, the crack, as you guys will call it. And it is yeah. absolutely, for me, it is what makes, I've had two jobs since I've started working ever um, that I've yeah. ever enjoyed in my life. And this is the second one. And I, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it at all. Um, and as you I, said, there's the, it's the social aspect of it yeah. with people um, that's kept me in it for so many years. Because I, I need that. I, I'm, I'm very bad on my own kind of person. I need to be around good people and happy people. And... As you said, no matter how long the shift is or how hard it is, um, could be like, as you said, 16-hour shifts, 12 days in a row. Um, but two things, your body kind of adapts to it, so you get yep. kind of used in that moment, you get used to like three or four hours sleep. And then the people around you, it's like you could wake up uh, very bad kind of, and but as soon as you get into that dealer's room and you see the other faces, uh, yeah. 
you have that chat, it, it gets you buzzing for the day again. Well, that's it. So, I mean, I, as I said, I've met so many weird and wonderful people, and they've probably yeah. met a lot of weird people when they've met me. But it's 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 I'm not saying that. <laughs> well, you know, great minds and all that. Um, it, it it does it gets you through the shift, knowing that yeah. you're not in it alone. There's another 20, 30, 40, 50, x amount of hundred dealers that are in it exactly the same as you. So as unhappy or as happy as you'll be, the person to your left or right is going to be in the same boat. The person you're rooming with. They're doing exactly the same as you. And as you say, when you get into the, the dealer room in the morning, half an hour, an hour before the dealer meeting, everybody's like, oh, yeah, getting the coffee, getting the Red Bull, getting a little bit of quick breakfast in. <laughs> Listen, we're all doing it together. We're all in this together. Nobody's uh, out of it. We're all in it together sort of thing. Yeah, so there was one funny story in particular. Um, as you all know, um, a dealer... And player um, on the Irish circuit called Simon Chang um, has sadly passed away this year. Yeah, um, he got COVID actually. Um, like he was, he was a massive personality. Yeah. Um, among the dealers and among the players, uh, I loved doing events with him. I I shared with him um, rooms in a few of the Goliaths. And I just loved being around him. He he would just he made me smile mm-hmm. every time I seen him. Uh, so I'd be having the worst day ever. Could be like a seventeen-hour shift, and then I get back to the hotel, and he'd be in the room, and he just had me in stitches straight away. <laughs> um, even during work, I'd go out for a smoke, and he'd be out there, and he'd have me laughing, and I could have came off, you know, the worst table ever, a table of uh, people not putting in their aunties and. <laughs> you know, that's our stuff. Um, yeah, and you go outside and you'd be pissed off and all the rest of it, and then Simon to be out there and he just cheer you up. So there's one story now. Uh, it was in the Goliath, and we were in a dealer meeting at the start of the day, and the DC at the time, which is the dealer controller for all you that don't know, um, was saying to us that. The hotel we're on tour because a couple of dealers have been acting up in the rooms, whether it be smoking or whatever, I don't know. Um, but she couldn't pinpoint who it was because dealers were changing rooms that they wanted to change to their friends' yeah. rooms and you know, all different things. So she was like, you know, if you've changed rooms, you have to let me know because I have to know who was in each room. So Dealers were kind of a bit nervous at the start and they were all putting up their hands saying, yeah, I changed rooms, I changed rooms. Like, she's like, it's okay, I just need to know. So at this point, kind of Simon's half drifting in and out of, it, <laughs> of what's going on. And then she says it again, she says, did anybody else change rooms? And Simon kind of half puts up his hand. <laughs> uh, and then like, we're all looking at him, there's about 80 dealers looking at him saying, come on, Simon, say something clever here. And he's like, I think so. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean you think so? You either changed rooms or you didn't change rooms. And he was like, well, I was in the side event room and now I'm in the main event room. <laughs> and the oh, tension broke. Like 80 dealers just fell down laughing. <laughs> even, even the DC, he was trying to 
you know, keep firm. She ended up breaking out laughing as well. So, yeah. And then Simon was like, shall I just leave now? Or? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually... It's one, one of them classic moments that just, you know, yeah. at a time where everyone was like, uh, you know, tense, he just cheered the whole room up. Broke, broke the tension. Um, yeah. There was, there was an odd... It was, oh, he was a diamond. Um, there was another story that I remember from Simon. Um, he had came off a table. Now, dealers all know that when you come off a table, a lot of the time you go to the DC, you'll tell them what table you've came from. And I'm sure he had came, and obviously the DC was trying to organise stuff, and it was the same, same DC. And she had said yeah. to Simon, where are you from? And I'm sure he said Dublin as opposed to what table he came from. And everybody <laughs> just fucking pissed herself. And again, the same, uh, the, the DC Danny um, couldn't contain yeah. herself because it's not that he meant to be, like he was trying to be yeah. the man about town. That was just the way it was, deadpan. He thought you were asking a serious question. Now, if he meant it, it probably wouldn't be yeah. as funny. But because he had this kind of knack of yeah, being in the right came. place at the right time, and, and I was trying to think half the times it looks like obviously he meant it, and another half the times just like this is actually But he, he was so natural at it. Like I remember yeah. um, one of them gigs, I was behind him in um, checking out, like getting paid. Mm -hmm. And you have to go into the DC and you have to tell her your hours, and then she'll tell you if you're correct. And, <laughs> and I was always a disaster at that because I didn't have my hours ready of how many hours ago. And she hated that. And Simon was the same. He went in and he didn't have he didn't have his he didn't have a clue how how much he worked and stuff. And she was getting really angry at him, shouting at him and stuff. And um, anyway, they sorted it out. But as he was leaving, she shouted, "Toy!" You know, for his toy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he turned around and goes, "No, I'm Chinese." <laughs> 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 and that's it. that's the thing is, I mean, I I know God God uh, God bless him and his family, and he will be sorely missed. But it's people yeah. like Simon that made and still do make the job that little bit easier and more enjoyable, and reason for turning up. Because listen, I, I don't say I've got that many friends within an X amount of mile radius, but I also always find it enjoyable. Even if there's that one or two people out of a hundred that you know, when you see them, you're going to give them a big hug, a big high five. You're going to sit down and have the laughs and the jokes with them. And it was people like him. I mean, I could rattle off numerous names of people who you sit there and you may not look like you're enjoying it, but inside you're like, I'm just so fucking glad you're in my life. And yeah. it's, it's, it's just, there is people like that out there. Uh, and it's, it's something that's very hard for all of us now to, to not have had that for so long. 100%. And, um, I think everybody just wants to get back like to a big gig like the Norwegians. Um, as hard as money is at the moment, not, not, not necessarily for the money, but just to be around that like for, for your mental health and everything. Just, just to be around people that you're familiar with, people that you know are happy to see you. And yeah, it's, that's a massive thing at the moment that's really missed, now I have to say. Yeah, um, yeah, it's um, it is a hard time of it. Um, now, poker wasn't what you wanted to do at the beginning. Um, we spoke about it, and we're going to go more in depth about it. And this kind of ties into the mental health awareness issues uh, that we're trying to 
as a as a team bring to people's fruition to highlight that within the poker world the last 12 to 14 maybe even longer months wise it hasn't been a bed of roses covid has highlighted that there is an issue as i said within the poker world whether you're a dealer whether you're a player you're a floor commentator etc etc um yeah. now we're going to go back to the beginning of uh, keith Connolly, as it were now as i said you don't want to do poker at the beginning you wanted to very musical person. Yeah. So I was brought up in Artane, mm-hmm. uh, which is home of the Artane Boys Band. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for those that don't know, it's, um, they call it the biggest little marching band in the world. It's, um, it's a marching band that um, play in Crow Park every Sunday for all the Gaelic football and hurling matches. Um, so we... I started at eight years old and um, they came to my school and they played on stage and I just looked up and said, yeah, I want to do that. So I went down there and I said, I think I said at the start, I wanted to play the clarinet. Mm-hmm. And the instructor came up to me and he looked at my mouth and my teeth and he said, a player. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Mostly because the size of my lips, I don't know why, but yeah, he's like, you're a trumpet player, so. Um, so he gave me a trumpet, and um, yeah, on from there, we, I, um, it was a five-day-a-week thing. Well, six days including. What age were you at this stage, Keith? Eight years of age. Eight years, okay. Yeah, so um, even when I went into the summer, that was kind of the Gaelic football season, so we'd have to play more so. So during the school year, I'd be in school till half two, half three. Um, and then I was in band for an hour and a half from like halfway to like seven o'clock. Uh, and then during the summer, I was still five days a week in the School of Music from, could have been at from 10 in the morning up till three o'clock uh, every day, practicing um, and then playing on Sunday. So I think I had like, you know, like only a few weeks of my summer actually, because I'd be, I'd be in the band most days. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, it was a big part of my life. Um, I've I, I done that up until I was 17, 18. Um, and then you wanted to go to, was it music college? Yeah, yeah. I went to a music college in Minute, um, was one of the ones I, one of the colleges I chose at the time. Um, and yeah, so I done the entrance exam. I done, um, then I done my, practical for the leaving cert and then I done my leaving cert um then my leaving cert exam started which is like the GCSEs over there uh-huh. or whatever uh it's like uh so I'm gonna be Troy oh, sorry that better be what yeah 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 because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. if it's no you can pass some this way <laughs> So, yeah, so I done my other exams, um, not very well, all the English and Irish and that sort of stuff, but I was mainly focused on my music exam, and that was the last exam, I think it was like a week after every other exam, you had a week's break and then the music was on. The, the training, as it were, the studying, and you had your, um, your music exam, the practical, 
and the listening one was it or writing or what was that yeah so it was um the music exam was basically theory and the listening exam um was coming up on the friday and so the friday before uh i'm getting ready for the exam and on sunday we got probably the worst phone call we could ever get um my father got a phone call he sorry he phoned in to christopher's job which was my older brother and um, his mm-hmm. job he hadn't heard from him in a couple of days which is very unlike my brother my brother would check in sure. every day uh he initially he told my father that he was gone on friday that he was done to work saturday morning And then he was going to his 21st birthday party on Saturday night and going back to work on Sunday. So he, so my father didn't hear about up from him on Saturday and rang in to his work on Sunday. And they said, no, Christopher hasn't turned up to work the last two days. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. that was massive. That, that was, uh, my dad just broke down crying because he knew, he knew something was uh, wrong. So he, this, the kind of search party started, he started bringing his phone and ringing everyone he knew. Um, yeah, it was, he got the police involved. They traced his phone to Galway. Um, Mum and dad went out to Galway uh, looking for him. Um, Fintan Gavin, who's a big name in poker in Ireland, he lives in Galway. And, he was on the ball. He welcomed them in and um, started a search party in Galway, and he was he was brilliant. I have to mention him in this. Um, so, anyway, kind of that long story, a bit shorter. He, he on Tuesday we got the phone call um, saying that uh, he was found. Um, he was found dead. He he hung himself in Manute College, which was where he went to college, um, from a tree. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, my mum and dad, yeah, yeah, my mum and dad, they were on their way back from Galway, they got the phone call, uh, they did, they told to, um, the person who was in our house at the time, kind of looking after us, um, the news, but not to tell us until, yeah, until we got home, uh, they came through the door and I just, I just knew, I knew yeah. with the way they came in. Um, that the news wasn't good, so so yeah, that that hit us massive. Did did um, you did your father or your mother? Because um, obviously I know that you're a close knit family. I said spoke about uh, family awareness and stuff like that. Did yeah. your father or your mother have any inkling that Christopher was going through a hard time, or that anything like this? I mean. I understand that your, your, you said that your dad hadn't heard from him for a couple of days and stuff, but did they have any inkling he was going through like a tough time or stuff like that? No, and and this was the thing. This was what like took us first. We just couldn't believe it. Um, <clears throat> like uh, we were trying to think up until then, you know, you go over every fucking second in your head about, um, you know, the way he was, the way you yeah. treated him. Believe me, I've been up and down every every day. I've been with him. I've been, I've been um, 
and we at the time we didn't know there was anything wrong uh but when when he was found he was found with a letter sure. so a suicide letter so the letter explained that he was going through mental illness for years for years um and we just we didn't know he he hit it so well uh because he was the type of person where he'd do anything for anybody you know sure. he'd always ask me my troubles every night he'd say keep what's going on you don't look um, too good he'd always try to help me and the family he was never one to talk about what he was going through but he just wanted to help everybody else you know he was that type of person so he'd sit down with me he'd talk about my troubles he'd help me um this is like most nights um he'd he'd make it his business to go down to his two nanas one day a week um and his nana granda so nana i mean nana jenny hegarty which a lot of people know from the poker scene sure um he'd be going down to them one day a week and he'd sleep over and he'd go to mass with them and um yeah, yeah he just that, that a bit, he just wanted everyone else to be happy uh which is usually the case with kind of these when yeah. people are going through mental issues um they the last person you think because they want that is very vibrant person and they want to make everyone happy so that's that's the type of person he was so getting back to the point um after we read the suicide letter um which is basically he mentioned each of us and why he done it and everything yeah. else we also found two diaries in his bedroom covering two years and he it logged every night and we found in the diaries that he had two alter egos so this is where it gets crazy sure um he had himself and he'd be talking all happy stuff like it was with keith and kevin today and we went here and there and it was really nice but then uh, but then he had ivan and tom which were his two alter egos so when <clears throat> tom was writing it was usually between like 12 o'clock at night and three in the morning was when he kind of log in uh-huh. and his writing was different it was it was crazy writing it was like it could have even been a different handwriting sure. um so it was crazy. like you could tell that christopher wasn't a part of this writing at all uh the stuff he was saying it was all dark stuff it was all against you know who he was and demons and stuff and then ivan would check in then as well and we believe that you know a lot of professionals and stuff um looked at these diaries and believed that the reason why he wrote them was because when he was in these people like schizophrenia when he was this person he didn't remember what he done or said when he was this person so that's why he started a diary so that he could read over when it right. was Ivan and um what what so, shit was going so so basically it was kind of like um there was three people yeah there was christopher but then as you said when it came to like midnight a little switch went and then somebody else took over his body uh, or another yeah. two people took over his body and subconsciously he knew this was happening but he couldn't control it yeah well when i go back to it 
when I look back on things, it was like he could control it a bit. Like he knew when it was going to switch because mm-hmm. I was down with him, as I said, it'd be in the kitchen with 10, half 10, and our thing was having tea and biscuits and a little chat. Could have been yeah. a couple of times. Uh, and he'd say, make me a cup of tea. So I'd be making him a cup of tea and I'd be getting the biscuits out. And then he'd vanish from the kitchen. You know, and he'd be gone, and he'd be up to the attic, up to his room, and like I'd be thinking at the time, what are we going to just have to make you a cup of tea and biscuits, and they're gone. Um, so at the time, you know, you just think, you know, he he was on a phone call, or he was yeah. tired, or blah blah. This happened a couple of times, and it's only afterwards I could say, you know, that he felt that something bad was kicking in his brain, and he didn't want to us to see it. So. It, it was controlled on that level to the point that we didn't see it. Uh-huh. Um, but we go back and we see things like him breaking his phone, throwing his phone, little spirits of anger um, that weren't like him. But as I said, at the time, you wouldn't think that extreme. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, I'm not a professional. I mean, we've all been through it, Keith, you, me, other people, maybe not to what your brother Christopher went through. But do you do you yeah. think one of his kind of lasting legacies, as it were, was to shield yourself and the family from this or these people, these alter egos, so that yeah. you wouldn't see this person, you wouldn't see what internally he had became through no fault of his own? Exactly. So, as I said before, he was always um, trying to make us happy. He was the type of person that, if there was, there was a big group of friends that he had, um, and he'd be the one to make them all meet. Not the way everyone's like, oh, I'm doing this and doing that, whereas he making his business to Pizza Hut on Tuesday at 7. It was a thing, could be in three weeks, but he'd be ringing everyone, get them all yeah. together. That sort of person, he wanted everyone. And when we were at these events, he'd only be happy if every single person was happy. If there was one person having a shit time, he'd be over with them, and he'd be having a bad time with them. So that was his thing. Um, so yeah, coming to the end of his time, he probably it was probably kicking in a lot stronger than what it was before. Going, uh, looking at the diaries, that was the case. There was more logs coming to the end of the bad stuff, um, and it was really demon all stuff. It was stuff all against who he was, and people don't like you, and you're uh, you, you know you're a vile piece of shit. All these horrible notions against yeah. him. Which we all, as you said, we all have them kind of minor episodes of that where we'd be saying to ourselves, you know, you're nothing, you're not, you know, um, you know, even even coming into this, up to this podcast or interview with yourself, I was thinking, you know, my demons are at me going, people, you know, you're not going to look great, you're not going to sound great. So we all get, but he was, he had this on a massive scale. Yeah. Um, and yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, he it was probably getting so bad that, as you said, um, it was gone past probably the point of trying to get help. And yeah, he didn't want the people he loved to see him as something that he wasn't. Uh, did did he? I mean, obviously, I know it's a personal thing between yourselves and your your family. Um, 
before you or your dad or your mum found the diaries, and again, we don't have to go into it fully, but in any of the like the suicide note uh, you said that you left, did he mention or did he point in any way, shape or form to these two demons that were within him? Or did you guys have to find his diary to find that out? I, we had to find the diary to kind of find it out. In in the letter, it was like you know the he was fighting demons, um, and he just he couldn't he couldn't uh, continue. Um, but specifically now, where we found the diaries, but he he left them there for us. Uh, right. I actually. Okay. I actually remember a time I was up in his attic, up in the room, and I seen one of the diaries. You know, and me being a young lad, I was laughing, you know, ah, ha, ha, you keep a diary. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> and uh, I went to grab it, you know, just to have a look. Oh, I'm going to read your diary. Um, and it was the most serious I've ever seen him get. It was like he shot across the room, grabbed the fucking thing off me, and he was like, you're not going to read that until after I'm dead, you know? And here's me looking at him going, what? you're going to die before me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then it was just kind of laughed and shrugged off. And, and yeah, um, I wasn't the type of person to go against his will and sneak in and have a look at the diary. Um, so I, that was that. Um, but mean, yeah, that was something that I did go back to after it happened. My brain was like, oh, yeah, of hey. course. So, I mean, it, it goes to show um, that even, even the happiest people can hide it very, very well. Um, I mean, there's obviously been other cases around the world, and the one thing that springs to mind, obviously, there's everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about, and also the happiest people are happy because they don't want you to see, they don't want you to deal with what they're dealing with. They try and make others happy because they never want to see anyone enduring what they're enduring. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, so moving on from the unfortunate like episode passing away of uh, Christopher. So do you think that um, with your brother passing, it affected you different than it affected your uh, rest of your family? Yeah. Yeah, so... I, it affected me very strange. Um, I kind of went into fight mode. So when uh, when my mom and dad were grieving and my little brother were grieving, I I kind of couldn't grieve. Um, and I thought that there was like something wrong with me because uh, I kind of had to kind of console my mom and dad and my brother. I became, you know, the person that kind of helped them. Um, and then I realized that I built a barrier so much that, you know, I was looking at them cry and um, stuff like that and go to counselors and stuff and kind of start working on it. Whereas I wasn't even near that point, you know, I, I couldn't cry. Um, I almost was questioning if I ever loved them, how, if, if I'm a psychopath, all these weird emotions are coming into my head because I just couldn't feel anything. I just couldn't... Uh, yeah, you know, it was it was very strange. Even at the funeral or after, I just wasn't able to to grieve. Um, I just felt nothing, and that kind of went into 
all of life. I didn't feel happy out seeing people. I didn't feel, um, I did, you know, someone could have punched me in the face and I wouldn't have felt it. It was all, it was very strange um, <clears throat> feeling. Do you feel uh, that you were, um, it was kind of, obviously the grief taken over, but you were being like a stone, like a, a rock for your mother, your father and your younger brother that, they were obviously grieving and letting it out and obviously very, very upset. I'm not saying you weren't, but do you feel yeah. that you had to be a rock for them? Someday, someday in the family had to step up. Exactly. Yeah. It um, kind of came on naturally. It wasn't that like I felt, you know, I'm going to have to be a big person here. It just kind of took that way. And yeah, I basically became a rock. Um, I don't know how helpful I was to them, but I just couldn't. I think at the start, I didn't want to be an extra burden on my mother and father by them having to look after me. But then that led into me being a pure stone. Uh, as I said, just not feeling anything. Um, and, you know, I, I tried to go to the same cancer that my mom and dad were going to, my brother, um, and I went to him. And... I think after the second session, he was just like, there's no point in continuing this because you don't, you're not at a place where we can start this process yet. Uh -huh. um, he says, I'm, I'm not getting that note yet. But that's not a bad thing. It's just that's how it, it affects some people. Um, yeah. He's like, there's no point in you coming here anymore because you're not ready to release. So I can't help you. Um, so yeah, I didn't even feel that. And, much out of that with that statement but I was like yeah fair enough uh whereas and then like it affected my mom my mom was like she my mom was having before this happened she was having a really good poker year uh -huh. and was it, it was it was probably one of our best years in poker um she won like four packages to the world series of poker worth like 12k each mm -hmm. uh, and she sold and she sold three of them. Uh, so, you know, a good bit of money there. But then after Chris passed, she was like, her brain was everywhere. And, yeah, and of course. she had this ticket, you know, for the World Series of Poker. And she was, you know, she was kind of thinking, will I play? Will I not play? Will it be good for me? Will it help me kind of take my mind off things? Or will, will it be a mess? You know, all these sort of emotions were going on. Um, and she talked to people like Park Parkinson, who's a great friend of the family, and all these sort of people were saying to her, to, you know, play, because uh -huh. at least for a while you're playing, you know, you'll be in the moment where you won't be, because obviously that's all she's thinking about, sure. losing her firstborn. Of course. Yeah. Um, so at least, you know, if she played cards for a bit, it would take her mind off. Um, so yeah, they went they, a few months later. They went. I think it was no. I think it was the month after. They went over to Vegas um try and get their head. Yeah. But no, it, it it didn't work. She said she was a mess. She couldn't concentrate. Um, she didn't want to be there. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, and it, it obviously my mom like will, you know, she's it never. She'll never ever get over. Obviously just never will uh -huh. but she learned coping mechanisms and and you know um, every now and again she lets a good cry out uh -huh. um and over time she was like always 
developing you know skills how to how to kind of move on in a way um but like for me it it just didn't happen for years um so leading on uh so after i found out the news i had to do my music exam I went in there. And I was a complete mess. Um, I how how long? It. Sorry, interruption. How long after Chris passed away did you have to do your music exam? Two days. Two days. Fuck's sake. Yeah. So um, the night before, my music instructor Tony Doherty, he's a legend. But I have to get his name in there. He's a legend. He came over to my house and he just consoled me and said, "Look." Um, Obviously, you don't have to do it if you don't want to do it. But if, like, if you don't do it, there wasn't um, things in place at the time where they could give you, you know, a different test. If you uh, at the mo- I think a few years ago they released, you know, a grievance thing where uh-huh. if so- if something extraordinary happens, you can do the, a different exam a few months later. But that wasn't the case um, back in two thousand seven. So, I I had if I wanted to get into college. I had to go and do it, and that was that. So I went in. My brain was a mess. I smoked twenty buck, twenty fives on the way there. I didn't smoke. Um, I sat down. I done the the kind of theory part of it. Um, I kind of flew through that, and then I do the listening part. It was we were studying the love team from Romeo and Juliet at the time by Tchaikovsky. Uh, yeah. And when, when they started playing it, my brain just went they said um you know with the music playing and, yeah. and whatever i just couldn't concentrate I, I ended up like you know just walking on out there uh they corrected what they could but um it wasn't good enough but you know i don't think i would have been able to go to minute college anyway because that's where my brother hung himself from so that, yeah. that was the college I was, I was trying to get into and i don't think i would have been able to get off the train there every day and walk past and walk you know, so even if I did get into the college, I don't think I would have went. Um, yeah, because it would have been tough to do that day in, day out, having to go to where his... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so... There's something going on when going in there every day. Yeah, of know? course. Yeah, and then having that kind of... An everyday occurrence, having to face that. I mean, um, going on from that... Did you start feeling you were spiraling out of control? Or? Yeah, so what happened to me was I had two years of the kind of feeling that I was telling you about. Uh, yeah. And I was feeling more. I was at home and I was getting frustrated and I was kind of, I think my grieving at the time was kind of snapping at everyone and uh, just not being a nice person to be around. Um, after kind of two years and I was doing a business course uh, FITAC level six that I didn't even want to do, I just done it so you know I'd be doing something, yeah. Uh, and it came to the stage where I just had to get out of there. Did you come to terms mentally with Christopher passing at any stage, or did you think I've still, you know, I've, I've, I've put it away, it's at the back of my head still somewhere, I've got this new feeling, this new sensation, I've got a family. A young lad on his way, and it was still at the back of your head. You still hadn't fully dealt with him passing away. 
no, so when I first came back, I faced it full on. Um, I, I was able to talk about it. I was able to tell my experiences of what I was feeling to my mum and dad. I was going down to the graveyard. I was, I was facing it full on and um, I talked about it as much as I could to everybody who listened to me. And I had gotten there. I, you know, after six months, I was, I was at a place where, you know, it was all out and, and um, everything was kind of good that way. And I was on the same level as my mum and dad. We had to talk about it. There was no elephant in the room. Uh, that sort of thing. And then I started a college course in... Um, it was a fast track to IT, so it was an IT yeah. course, uh, and I was doing that, and I just I didn't have a clue what was going on. It wasn't for me. Um, but then a weird thing happened where this wasn't about Christopher anymore. This was about me. I tumbled into depression then, uh-huh. really, really bad. It, I think it was what I was expecting. Um, Conrad, my firstborn, I didn't have a clue what road I was on. Um, the excitement of traveling and everything had stopped. I was back home. Um, every everything just hit me, and I was walking around every day, and I just didn't see the point of it. I didn't mm-hmm. see the point of a day. It didn't feel, like, you know, this was this was a really mental illness sort of stuff. Um, I went to the doctor. He prescribed me with some sort of thing. I tried it, kind of. Tablet kind of kickstarted me during the day, but didn't do much. Um, so yeah, well, I went in a really bad place. Did you um, did you know that you were going into this bad place, or you know, did you just uh, this is just how I'm feeling and fuck it, you know? Because obviously the reality of, as you say, you'd been travelling, you'd been backpacking for five years. In a way, you'd been putting emotional baggage at the back, Christopher. Still in your mind, but it's at the back. You've came home. You've kind of faced up to things with your mum, your dad, and your brother. You've visited the grave, um, Christopher. You've kind of put yeah. it to rest a little bit. But now reality is hitting you. You're not travelling. You're not getting the enjoyment out of it. You're having to do the day-to-day grind, as it were. You've tried yeah. the IT course. You've tried to get back into life. Nothing can motivate you anymore. Yeah. So, did it just go downhill from there on? Massively, massively. It was, I don't, my brain couldn't even work or tell me what, what was happening or why it was happening. It was just like, a lot of people that go to mental health will tell you, they wake up and it's just like a grey cloud is there and don't even know why. And like, you can say to people that, you know, you're in a bad place and they be like, I'll oh, get over it or whatever. But it's, it's just, you just can't. It's like, it's, it's like a chemicals in your brain aren't yeah. aligning with each other. Um, and no matter what anyone says, um, like one story there, I was in college and I didn't know where I was or what was happening. So I decided to go down and get my lunch in this place called Chop, sells mm-hmm. salads. Uh, I mean, my Bruce Lee actually owns it. Um, and I went in there and I seen Andy Black was in there, who's a friend of the family and a big name on the poker circuit. And he called me over straight away, says, Keith, hello. And we bought our salads and we sat beside each other. And he took one look at me and says, Keith, you're not okay. And I said, 
how do you know? <laughs> and he, he says, I could just see it all over you. Like, he's done the whole Buddhist monastery thing for yeah. years, and he's well up on that um, sort of thing. So he just said, yeah, you're not okay. Um, he, he made me talk a bit through what was going through. Uh, and he said, right, look, he told, he says, I'm a friend of your mom and dad. He says, I'm going to help you. So he told me to go off and write a list of things of uh, where I am, what I want, what's happened to me. I'm meeting back the same place next week. I think we were there like to the close. They had to kick us out. We had a three hour chat. Right. <laughs> and, and I met, I met him there for the next few weeks, every week. And I could feel myself, you know, getting up by the purpose now. Um, he was giving me lists to do. Um, and I was getting up and doing things and I was starting to feel that I was somebody and that I was doing something. And uh, there was a momentum there. There was a purpose. Uh, and he, he, he did really get me out of a hole. Now I have to say. And uh, mm-hmm. then leading on from that, my mother rang me one day and she says, uh, oh, Keith, there's a um, cycle for suicide is coming up. Um, and I was like, okay, what's that? And she was like, oh, it's a massive um, cycle that they do every year. Um, for suicide, they basically thousands of people cycle around Ireland for over 14 days. Um, and I, I think it'd be great. You know, you spread the message of it's okay not to feel okay. Um, they stop in the school every day and they preach the message and they talk to these kids. And so I says, yeah, I'll do it. I was never a cyclist really. Um, I think it was like in six weeks. <laughs> I was like, right. I'm going to have to cycle 1,400 kilometers now in 14 days and have six weeks to learn how to cycle. Uh, my dad bought, bought me my bike like three weeks before it. Uh, and yeah, no, I just went and done it. And it was the best thing that I've ever done in my life. Uh, it was, as I said, it was in, I was in a bit of a bad place at the time. And uh, getting on that bike every day and cycling beside people who have gone through the same thing as you sure you're talking you're talking to them you're letting everything out you're telling these people random people like like stuff you wouldn't tell your mom your dad just you know all these stuff and then you're stopping off at the school after a few hours and the school you're going in and um the people there's people talking to the kids and there's people uh they're playing music they're getting the kids up to dance they're talking about mental health they've all these professional speakers in and I just cried. I just cried, you know, it was so emotional. Um, t- everyone telling these stories to the kids and seeing the kids, you know, soak it in and get up and jump around and, and spreading this message and uh, get, telling them that's okay to talk to their friends and all this. And I had that experience every day. And then um, they also done homestays. So at the end of the day, a family volunteered to take a couple of cyclists into their house. Yeah. They have a big dinner ready for you. They have a few cans with you. You know, they share their experience. And it was just, it was 14 days of, you know, incredible getting everything out, um, you know, get, having all these emotions, seeing everyone that you're not the only one. Everyone's gone through it. Everyone's talking about it. And it's spreading this massive message to everybody, to all the schools. Um, and yeah, it was a, Jim Breen is the, is the organizer of all that. Um, he was obviously a millionaire. He's, you know, it's a massive, it's a massive thing. It's the best thing I've ever done. Do you feel that, <clears throat> obviously speaking to Andy Black, uh, a lot of people know he done, as you said, he done the Mondes, uh, the monk thing. <laughs> um, he 
I think he final tabled one of the World Series main events as well, and he highlighted all the stuff that he's done. He's written about it. He spoke openly about it. Did you feel speaking to him was basically the beginning of your mentally turning around, basically facing up to stuff? Yeah, m- massively. He 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 helped me, as I say, get my momentum going. He helped me like really get there. Like I wouldn't have done the cycle against suicide. I wouldn't have even had mm. the courage or anything. But he got me to that place. Sure. You know, a part of his whole thing was of, of getting your mental health back to normal. It was just do it. Just just get out yes. there. Do exercise. Do anything to just get moving. And he he built me up and gave me the confidence to, you know, I know I don't decide against suicide now, but he got me to that place. Yeah, of course. To be able yeah. to do it. Um, yeah, so it was massive. He knew all the tools. He has all the tools to kind yeah. of get me going. Yeah, I mean... A lot of people, there's a massive stigma, whether it be young men, young women, old men, old women, etc., etc., that um, especially, and I know, and a lot of people shy away from it, within the poker world, there's all a man up or woman up or whatever it is, and it fucking frustrates the absolute life out of me. No, it does, because... No, I know. Man up, no, well, you don't know what it's fucking like for the next person. As you said about your brother, God rest him, he always went out with that smile on his face. He visited your nana. He always made sure everyone was happy. And it was kind of obvious that what he was wanting to do was make sure that no one ever felt the shit times that he was going through. A lot of us can relate to that, 100 million percent. So for someone who, in my opinion, is very, very ignorant to sit there or stand there and say, man up. You don't know what the other person's going through. And what I feel as a community, and a pocket community, is we need to address this. We need to understand, as you've said, it is okay not to be okay. It's okay to, to cry. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It's okay to openly talk about these things. Now, if you're unsure about talking to family, because as you said yourself, when Christopher passed away, you turned into a, like a stone. You didn't want to yeah. speak to your dad or your mum about it or Kevin about it. And a lot of people go through this. A lot of people think, I can't talk to them. I don't want them finding out. Or I can't, I don't have friends. Because when you're at your lowest in your mind, you've got fucking no one. No one will understand what you're going through. Now, you and even if they do, you don't want to listen to them. A hundred percent. Because you think, as you said, What's the point in getting up in the morning? Nah, I'm a worthless piece of shit. Um, nobody goes, nobody's going to care. You found Andy. There is people out there. We have to reiterate this. And I know that the podcast is working together with these two uh, mental health charities. All you have to do is email, pick up the phone, do a chat, speak to someone, give someone a message. Or if you're on the other end of this and you think, actually, wait a minute, I've not heard from that person for a while. Send them a message. It only takes you 20, 30 seconds. All right, how are you doing? How's things? Pick up the phone. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't... I would rather be a pest or a pain in the ass of messaging or phoning someone constantly yeah. than wake up one day thinking, fucking hell, I wish I could have done something. Because uh, there was a massive message like that that the cycle against suicide got back. Uh, so, like, when we when we done the cycle against suicide, there's like thousands of us all cycling down the road, all wearing an orange t-shirt, 
so everyone could see the message, like spreading awareness. Um, but they got one email back after it from some person saying that they were on their way to end their life. Mm-hmm. And they've seen, they seen all these cyclists, all cycle boy, to spread the message. And they, they taught things true. You know, if, if 7,000 people are willing to cycle around the country to, to spread this awareness, and they end up staying alive and sending that message. And it was, like, it was mass, massive feedback. And it was, you know, that, like you said there, you could just be saying hello to someone. But it could mean so much for them. 100%. It could mean so much. Like, it, it's unbelievable. Like, even me, like, I'm a very, very hard person to myself on my own. I hate being on my own. I, I just, I thrive around people. People on the poker circle will know me for that. They know me for being very social, talking, mm-hmm. always trying to have a good time. Yep. But it's because, it's because when I'm on my own, I, I'm just t- targeting myself all the time. So when I get a message whether it be a mess, Facebook message from you or from any other of my colleagues, I actually get so happy, yeah. you know, so happy. And especially during this COVID to, to Zoom people or have them group chats or whatever, just helps so much. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I I used to hide it for years. Um, I'm not going to go into it because we'll be here for another 18 hours. Uh, sorry to be a long <laughs> time as it is, but... I used to hide and hide and hide from the fact I had problems. And I went through a bad time like a lot of us did last October, November time. And I basically put my phone in the cupboard and I didn't speak to anyone. And what kind of semi-snap me out of it is I would see the same four or five people had messaged or tried to phone me. And... Yeah. It does make you feel that there is some sort of there is some sort of um, reason to continue. Um, as, as, yeah. as dark as dark as it as dark as it can be, because um, we all go through fucking dark times, regardless whether you've lost someone or um, or whether you just think you feel worthless or you've had an addiction or something like that, and to feel wanted by at least one or two people is, yeah. I know it's going to sound completely corny as hell. It's life changing at times because, yeah, when you're in your dark place, when you're at your lowest, you you feel fucking worthless. I mean, there was times I was going through, I could be in a room full of a thousand and one people, and I'm that one person. Um, yeah, and 999 people say, "Oh, brilliant! Yeah, thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing that." And that one person thinks negative, and all you can yeah. hear is that one person's yeah. voice. Yeah. And you know, it's um, if you don't because, that, because in your mind state at the time, that negative person is telling you what you want to hear, what you already think about yeah. yourself. Yeah, and at, at the time, it's almost confirming it for you. It's like yeah. I knew it. I, I knew it was worthless. Yeah. You it's, know? it's like what you, you said about um, Christopher with his book, with his demons. Some, yeah. Sometimes the demons are all you've got to talk to. There's no one else. This is what you're thinking when you're in that negative state. But there is, and I can't reiterate enough, that there is people out there, regardless of how fucking shit you think the life is, how low yeah. you think it is. There's always at least two, three people. And I know that people are going to be watching this. Well, it's easy for him to say he talks a lot. Listen, there is always someone there that is willing to listen. 
that's willing to be there for you. Have a drink with you, have a smoke with you, do whatever. There's always something. Never, ever, ever fucking think that there's not. There is always. And if by doing these chats or if by doing these awareness programs or whatever it is, can it reach at least one person and basically tell that guy, that girl, that it's not fucking as bad as you think it is, then it's a million times brilliant. I mean, you've said you brought, you've up, done... a good point there. You brought up a very good point there. This is also a message to all the cunts out there or the people that act like cunts. They don't realise that if they say it to the wrong person, how yeah. much of an effect that yeah. can have. On them. You said like that one person in the room, he might, you know, he might be having a few girls, he mightn't think anything of it. But him being a dick on the poker table or being horrible to a dealer or s- something, mm-hmm. he'll brush it off. He won't think it. But that person could go home and, you know, you don't know. You just don't yeah. know. It's like, it it is, I mean, as you say, it's, um, listen, I, I've, in the in the past, I've I've said stuff about thinking, and then you sit down and you educate yourself. I've not had um, I know for a fact that there's probably I've said something to someone and not thought about it, and I've and and then the more I've educated myself over the years, I've came to think to myself, "Well, fucking hell, man, you were an absolute bastard by saying that." But I've educated myself. I've been low, and I thought to myself, "If this is how I felt, imagine how that fucking person felt." So. You change, you educate, you try not to be a prick. You try to think, come on, fuck. Does it matter whether you like somebody or don't like somebody? If you don't like them, don't don't fucking go out your way to make their life even worse because yeah. it benefits or makes you feel better. No, no, no. Because I'm going to make you feel better by that much. That 100%. But by making you feel better that much, that might make that other person feel worse by a million times. And you don't fucking yeah. know if that's going to be the word that sends them over the edge. Be nice. And if you haven't got anything nice to say about someone, don't fucking say anything at all. Anyway, getting back to that. Now, you've done the charity, the the bike riding and stuff like that. I think you've mentioned before to me that Kevin, your younger brother, he does a lot of charity work. And also your father um, has uh, written recently a poetry book along with Paul Fielstein or Philstein. No, so so uh, one of the ways um, my father, because I, I talked a bit before about how I how I done things to grieve and how my mum done things to grieve yeah. and stuff. One of the ways my dad grieving was by writing. He started writing poetry out of nowhere. Just started writing poetry about Christopher, about suicide, about about anything. You know, it could be about poker or. or he started writing it like almost daily so like we were on them for years you know you have to get this published these poems are very good you know he was sending these poems to other poker players and dealers and stuff and they were saying geez i mean this is these are great mm-hmm. he wrote a load of limericks and, and yeah so eventually um paul fielstein is um he's actually a book um editor mm-hmm. and um so he decided, he told me that to give him all his poems um, and he'll, he'll make a book out of it. So my dad decided to, there was, this is only a small portion of his poems, but they're all poems that are connected with kind of suicide and, and mental yeah. health and, and for the homeless and stuff like that. So he decided to release a book 
um, which would kind of have all them points in it. And also he, he decided to give all the proceeds to charity. Sure. So 50% of the money would go to Brother Kevin, who is um, who does all the homeless in Dublin. Anyone that's that's uh, worked with the homeless or been unfortunate to be homeless, they'll all know Brother Kevin. He's a legend. Um, and he's given 50% to be at the house as well. So um, that book is going to be on Amazon. It's called There You Go. It's um, it's going to be out soon. I'll put a link up to it soon. Um, yeah, of course. But it's it's uh, it's going to be a normal book. It's going. They're also doing an ebook. And my friend, who's, who's actually was a poker dealer, Joshua Naden or Naden, um, <laughs> is actually a, he's a narrator. Now he he narrates and produces um. Audiobooks. Audiobooks, yeah, yeah, brilliant. So he jumped in straight away when he seen the charities we were doing it for. He said, "Look, send your dad a message, and I'm will, I'm going to do um, an audiobook for him." Um, yes. Yeah, so he's a JHN Narration Productions. Is um, he's he's very good. He's done like 50, 50 plus books already, and yeah, so it's great. Brilliant. <clears throat> I mean, I, I'll I'll put a link up as well. Where I've I've read one of the I think you tagged me in one of his poems last night. Um, it's brilliant, and I suppose it's his way of um, facing up to certain things, certain demons that he may have after the, your big brother passed on, um, and getting a lot yeah. of off his There's chest, out of his head, and putting it on paper, and sharing yeah. his experiences with people. Um, yeah. It's a brilliant thing to do. Um, all used, laughing and joking aside. And he made it creative himself. Yeah. Oh, like all laughing and joking aside, I know me and your, your dad and even yourself have the banter about football and stuff like that. But that's banter. And we kind of bounce yeah. off each other because it is exactly that. It's banter. We get a laugh out of it and stuff like that. But what he's doing, along with everyone involved, uh, Joshua Nadine, uh, Paul Fieldstein, even uh, your brother as well. It's absolutely phenomenal. And we need more people to openly express these things and come out and basically it is okay not to be okay and highlight these facts that there is people out there, there is charities out there or people, whatever it is, that are willing to listen, are willing to help. Yeah, 100%. Brilliant. I mean, as I said, We'll get that all done. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Keith. We've uh, we've overrun our yeah. stay, I think, in Thailand. It might be about <laughs> half past nine in the morning now. Um, but you've turned the corner. You're there. You're on another passage of your life. And I think that's a massive thing for yourself. Massive smile on your face. Two beautiful kids. A beautiful uh, wife and family. And next chapter of your life coming soon. And that's a, a massive thing for yourself. And I'm sure Christopher will be up there smiling. And all yeah, the hard yeah. work you and your family have done, my friend. And it has been a pleasure, my friend. You take care of yourself. And well, we'll have a drink a sometime soon, mate. Thanks very much for having me, man. Yeah. Cheers, buddy. Very enjoyable. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you very much.